0: Hi everybody and welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. My name is Shmuel Shoham. I'm an infectious disease doctor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and my focus is on infections in transplant and oncology patients. We're excited to be starting up this podcast again. We've been on a little bit of over a two-year hiatus because of COVID and things got very busy, both in terms of clinical care, in terms of research, in terms of life in general, and had to take a break. But now that things have gotten into a little bit more of a routine, as much as anything can be a routine in the world of transplant and oncology infectious diseases, we're starting this podcast up again and excited. And uh, for people that were following us before we took the break, welcome back and Hopefully, this will be a uh, useful and educational podcast for you, for new listeners. Glad to have you and hope that it'll be a fun experience to listen to what's going on in transplant infectious disease and uh, hopefully can have some feedback as to how we can make things better, how we can uh, meet the needs of the listeners. So we're going to start with a case and this is a uh, 47-year-old woman with diabetes, hypertension, end-stage renal disease two years ago. She had a kidney transplant. Things have been going well. She has been vaccinated for COVID on multiple occasions, but just not getting a great antibody response. She's not received evusheld. And now she calls the clinic saying that she's been exposed to a person with COVID and she too has symptoms suggestive of COVID it is recommended that she have a uh, test. And in fact, she does a home antigen test and it's positive for COVID. She then has a PCR test to confirm it and it's positive. That is probably not necessary because the pretest probability of her having COVID is so high. So then the next question comes is, what are we going to do about this situation? And the the options on the table are to Treat her with an oral medication, and there's a couple options there, or with an injectable option. In terms of an oral medication, nirmatrelivir ritonavir, Paxlovid is the trade name, and I'll use that one just because it's easier to pronounce, and molnupiravir are the two oral options. Problem with those is as follows. So ritonavir is a component of Paxlovid, and ritonavir has pretty important drug drug interactions with medications that transplant patients are frequently receiving. So, if a patients receiving a calcineurin inhibitor such as tacrolimus or cyclosporin or if they're receiving an mTOR inhibitor such as rapamycin or uh, everolimus, uh, rapamycin also known as sirolimus or again everolimus, then uh, that can lead to increased level of those drugs. We've had experience at our hospital. We've heard of experience where people have received uh, Paxlovid while on a calcineurin inhibitor, tacrolimus, for example. And even with holding the tacrolimus, the levels are sky high and they have toxicity from the tacrolimus. So, we have not been routinely using Paxlovid in transplant patients. And most transplant centers that I'm aware of also try to stay away from that drug. There are some things that can be done, such as stopping the uh, calcineurin inhibitor or the uh, mTOR inhibitor. However, even with doing that, the levels can still get uh, high. And there's a problem in that when you stop a medication such as tacrolimus uh, or the other calcineurin inhibitors or mTOR inhibitors, then there's a risk that the patient can have uh rejection episode or can have very low levels or potentially... Uh, high levels. So uh, getting them a blood test can be complicated while they both have COVID and are not feeling well. And then places where uh, they might go to get their blood drawn, uh, a laboratory might have a uh, challenges in terms of getting blood drawn while somebody has COVID. So we have stayed away from that drug for that reason. So the other option uh, that's a pill is Molnupiravir. And it has been concern about the efficacy of Molnupiravir in general, and particularly when compared to some of the other therapies that are out there. Uh, There have not been randomized control head-to-head trials of Molnupiravir versus another therapy, but there's some data from Hong Kong where they were able to retrospectively look at it, and the results were disappointing from Molnupiravir. There is this other possibility that Molnupiravir can uh, cause mutations in the virus, and perhaps somebody who is immunocompromised who might have a high viral load could have breakthrough infection. Uh, That's been speculated. The other problems with moldupiravir is that uh, it is mutagenic for people and there are contraindications also related to uh, pregnancy and to people that potentially could become pregnant. So a lot of issues with moldupiravir, although I'll say that I had a patient that lived in another country that developed COVID and there were no other options there. The person had been vaccinated. They did have moldupiravir in that other country and uh, the patient used it and recovered. Can't say that they would never cover it without Molnupiravir. Don't know exactly uh, the impact, although it was nice to have an option for this patient that did have some uh, antiviral activity. So then moving away from the uh, problematic medications that can be taken orally, there are um, two injectable drugs that are widely available and then uh, high titer convalescent plasma. So remdesivir is an injectable possibility. Uh, The pine tree study in uh, patients in general showed that three days of therapy was uh, able to prevent hospitalization effectively. And that is an option. Uh, Many of us have used remdesivir inpatient. Most of us have not used it outpatient yet, although the uh, pine tree study does support that. There are some complications that can exist when using a drug such as remdesivir in the um, outpatient setting. The most important one is that the patient has to come in for three days of infusions. Uh, potentially, this can be arranged to do at home remdesivir. But uh, again, the logistics, which has been the problem since day one with COVID, it's not just the science, it's not just the biology, it's also the logistics of getting people tested, getting people into uh, clinics, getting drug into people, lots of problems with uh, logistics and three days of IV remdesivir definitely has logistical issues. The other drug that's available for now is bebtelovimab, and that's a monoclonal antibody directed against the virus and the spike protein of the virus. And we've seen a parade of monoclonal antibodies that have absolutely revolutionized our ability to care for transplant patients. And uh, bebtilovimab is the uh, one that is still effective against the newer variants of the virus that we're seeing. So the Omicron variants that are predominant in the U.S. right now and the ones that we expect to continue to be predominant for the next several weeks to months are all in vitro sensitive to beptilovimab and using bridging data, data from the in vitro showing that it's effective. And the vast experience that we now have in using beptilovimab for patients at risk for progression to more severe disease We have been using beptilovumab in our transplant patients for prevention of progression to disease, and it's been incredibly uh, effective, as have the other monoclonal antibodies when they were susceptible, or rather when the circulating variants were susceptible to them. Again, the only circulating, uh, uh, the only monoclonal antibodies that the current circulating variants are sensitive to is uh, beptilobumab. There's also sensitivity to Evushel, but that's not approved for uh, or authorized for treatment of infection. That's for prevention of infection. So back to uh, beptilobumab, we're using it. However, the way that the drug is available to our patients is through uh, the federal government. They've purchased it and then they make it available to the states. We've heard reports that the supply of beptilobumab is good, but that the federal government's uh, ability or um, desire to purchase those drugs and then deliver them to uh, our patients has uh, is is coming to an end. I think this is an important development and unwelcome development for our transplant patients because the uh, other three drugs that I mentioned Paxlovid problem with drug drug interaction Remdesivir problem with having to give somebody three days of an IV therapy, Molnupiravir problem with questionable efficacy and potential for mutation, make beptilobumab the drug of choice for a transplant patient who's on a calcineurin inhibitor or on an mTOR inhibitor for treatment of COVID. So we're very concerned that the supply will be um, cut off or made unavailable to our patients because of financial issues. Whether uh, the insurance companies will step up, whether the manufacturer of Beptolamab will step up, whether the federal government will step up is unknown now. And I think that this is an important area for advocacy on behalf of our patients, contacting local leaders, contacting national leaders, contacting insurance companies, contacting the company to try to encourage them to make this drug available. Now, it's quite possible that in three months six months, who knows uh, that the virus will become resistant to beptilovimab and it will no longer be effective. But for now, as it is effective, this is uh, the drug of choice that we're using. And again, we're concerned that it may not be available. The uh, fifth option is uh, high-titer convalescent plasma. In uh, uh, multiple studies in immunocompromised patients, it's shown to be effective, particularly when used early on in the disease uh, within... several days uh, to a week after the first symptoms, that's when you have the most efficacy. However, because immunocompromised patients may not have a good antibody response, the window of opportunity for high titer convalescent plasma to be effective is probably longer than in a uh, patient who is not in that condition. I tend to think of uh, COVID as having uh, three different phases and it's a simplistic approach, but it's the, the one that I think fits it for most patients and that you have the viral phase where an antiviral, whether it's a, a small molecule or a, a monoclonal or convalescent plasma, is going to uh, make an impact by killing virus directly or by activating a part of the immune system to kill the uh, virus, probably mostly though by direct killing of the virus. Second phase is the inflammatory phase where the... Uh, overactive immune system causes uh, inflammation in the lung and in other tissues, and the patient has damage there. That's a place where the antiviral drugs are going to have very limited activity to no activity because the problem is now driven by an overactive immune system rather than by the virus itself. And then the third phase, which is that the uh, lung and the respiratory tract and potentially other tissues have been damaged by the combination of the virus and the immune system and then secondary problems occur bacterial superinfection fungal superinfection damage to the uh the lung due to clots and problems related to that also the treatments themselves may have caused damage to the patient, whether it's an immunosuppressive drug or in rare situations, whether it's a, one of the um, antiviral drugs may have caused toxicity to, to the patient. In transplant patients, some of these phases are not as distinct as in other patients so that you can have a patient in both the viral phase and the inflammatory phase at the same time. And at the same time, they may then also have some of the uh, super infections all occurring at the same time. So it becomes a lot more complicated to tease out the specific phenotypes that I described of uh, viral infection, inflammatory reaction, and uh, post-infectious damage because they can all be mashed up into uh, one very complex phenotype. And for that reason, I think that treatment with passive immunotherapy, whether it's in the form of a monoclonal antibody that's effective against circulating variants or high titer convalescent plasma can be effective in immunocompromised patients. So for this particular patient in um, June, July of 2021, Two, when we still have the availability of beptilovimab, that would be my drug of choice. What are we going to do when the beptilovimab supply runs out? I think that we're gearing up for that. And IV remdesivir for three days, perhaps molnupiravir, and high titer convalescent plasma are all going to be options. And all of them have uh, complexities in terms of efficacy and logistics. For the next part of this podcast, we're going to interview Olivia Cates. She is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and a trusted colleague. Hi, Olivia.
1: Hey, Jamal. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for doing this. And uh, I see that you have a co-host there.
1: I have two companions. This is Azamandius, who is a Pomeranian puppy. And this is Wotan, his Pomeranian big brother.
0: Nice. Is, is Wotan showing him the ropes?
1: Not at all. He has absolutely no interest in uh, co-parenting this delinquent with me, but he's along for the ride anyways.
0: Along for the ride. And how are they doing on mix apps? Have they been studying?
1: I think Wotan's probably the smarter of the two. He actually was recently diagnosed with doggy heart failure. So we're getting a little insight into the lived experience of patients and families with heart failure. We have our little pill sorter, the vet calls and says, oh, change the Lasix. And you got to go through the pill sorter and pick them all out for the rest of the week. And I think I have a lot more empathy for people when they complain about that now.
0: Yeah. Isn't it amazing that when either you or somebody that you love is dealing with a medical condition, all of a sudden creates another level of understanding as to what our patients are going through?
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting, actually. And I've had really good experiences with all the veterinary care that we've gotten in the past year. But, you know, I realize pets and people sometimes seem different, sometimes seem very much the same. But I think I have had some insight into getting and giving bad news and things like that just from the time we've spent at the vet.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's for me, one of the most educational parts was that we, when we're the patient or the family member, want to know right away what's going on. And uh, of course, we know from our part as doctors that sometimes the uh, delay between when the patient is getting in to see us or when the, the results are back or when we put it all together is, is it's a delay. And for us, we got a zillion other things to do. So we're not sitting on pins and needles, but for uh, the person living with it and wanting to know, okay, is this news that's going to come going to upend my life or what does it all mean to me? Time can really, uh, can really stretch.
1: For sure. We had some labs on Monday that I still haven't seen yet and I'm trying to be cool, but no, it's definitely not easy.
0: So let's shift a little bit. We'll start with, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to transplant infectious disease.
1: Yeah. So as you, my colleague, know, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine, the Division of Infectious Diseases. And I believe we are the section of Transplant Oncology Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins. I started that job about a year ago, basically today. So far, so good, I think. And I ended up in the No, no field... better than that.
0: Better than so far, <laughs> so good. Crushing it.
1: Thank you. Definitely having a really good time, which I think bodes well. And I ended up in this field really because of the two things that I enjoyed most in medicine, which were infectious diseases and transplants. I think infectious diseases is, hopefully, your listeners agree, probably the most interesting and dynamic field that I've found in medicine. I think it's got a really nice narrative or storytelling component. You know, a lot of our work is really about patient stories and even, you know, global stories, geopolitical stories. And I really liked blending all of that information together to try to nail down what was going on and then create interventions that were going to fit with the patient's story going forward. And then some of the most dramatic and compelling stories I think we can imagine really are in transplantation, where we bring people from sort of the brink of death with end-stage organ failure into this whole new phase of life that's not really being restored to the before time, but it's also not continuing down that same terrible path. It's very, it's transformative in a really cool way. And so I like being able to do both of those things at the same time.
0: It's remarkable how, uh, particularly with liver and lung and heart, but also with with kidney, how somebody's life can be transformed by uh, a transplant. Uh,
1: Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. I mean, even with kidney, right? I know we don't always think of these as life-saving transplants, but they do prolong life expectancy. And frankly, you know, just saving me 10 hours of life Every week would be pretty magnificent, right? So I think all of these interventions are really amazing. And do a great deal for our patients. <laughs> Sorry, they don't have doggy heart transplant, so we should have doggy bad behavior over here.
0: <laughs> no, for uh, people listening, there's items being tossed to and fro in uh, Dr. Kate's apartment right now.
1: The Zoom world has been very interesting because you know I am not fancy enough yet at this stage in my life to have more than one room in my uh, living space. And I share that room with these two uh, fur balls. So they've made appearances in all kinds of conferences, national meetings, international meetings, you know, proceedings before the court. They're really distinguished, but it's not really reflected in their behavior.
0: So um, you trained at Columbia?
1: Yeah, I did my medicine residency at Columbia and then infectious diseases fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle basically been bouncing around for my entire training experience, which has been a lot of fun, but hopefully settled down for a little bit now in Baltimore.
0: Yes, hopefully enough bouncing around for the next five years minimum uh, and stay with us. So uh, when you were in Seattle, aside from staying inside from the rain and going to Hikes Place Market, you got involved with COVID and transplant very early on. Tell us about that experience.
1: Yeah, that was a Pretty exciting experience. And so, for folks listening who either don't know or haven't put two and two together because I've proceeded to obscurity, this is about the University of Washington COVID 19 NSOT Registry Project, which is a project that I started with Ajit LeMay and Cindy Fisher at the University of Washington all the way back in March of 2020. And that resulted in what I hope were some really valuable publications about the clinical course of COVID and at least during the early parts of the pandemic in transplant recipients. And that project really happened by accident. I was not a sort of clinical or observational researcher. I was not a virologist. I was not an epidemiologist. But There was a lot of upheaval in everyone's sort of work right at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had an early patient case of COVID-19 in a kidney transplant recipient. And I actually approached Dr. LeMay and asked if he would be interested in writing the case up as a case report. And as you can imagine, that snowballed considerably to what became an over 1,000-person registry project just over the course of a few months.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And you were a fellow at the time. So for uh, our listeners who are uh, fellows, what's the uh, what was the process like getting a uh, rapidly developing study up and running that has global implications?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't know or really expect that it would have global implications at the time, but the process was interesting, I think, particularly because a lot of the support system had been diverted elsewhere to deal with other parts of COVID. And so really what happened was, approached Dr. LeMay about a case report, and he said, you know, why don't we try for a case series? Why don't we see if anyone else has seen a case and we could pull them all together? It's like, oh, that's a good idea. And then sort of sat quietly by myself and reflected on how best to do that and ended up creating this sort of survey instrument to report cases. And again, this is sort of what happens when I think you sort of build the machine as you go, is kind of learn some of the regulatory requirements and try to adapt to them as we went. And it resulted actually in a project that was really pretty flexible from the start. We had a case report form that allowed people to enter data prior to obtaining IRB approval at their institutions. And so that sort of allowed us to claim this space and build the study as the data were coming in, as opposed to trying to plan out the entire study from the beginning during a time when I think The urgency of collecting and then sharing this information was really, really high. And so I think the model worked really well for this situation. We wanted to be able to have preliminary data and really reflect that data back to the community as quickly as possible. So we were sharing updates on the data as it came in. And as some of our sort of observational researchers who might be listening can imagine, that's not always going to be the best or most appropriate model for collecting your data or for analyzing your data, right, to provide frequent updates like this. All of these looks at the data are going to affect your data quality and the appropriateness of your extensive analyses. And so, in many ways, we were lucky that the that my sort of ignorance and the need to learn how to do it as I went, of course, coincided really well with the need to... Revisit the data repeatedly as we went. I don't know if the same model is going to work for future research if the pace of infectious diseases research ever slows back down. Who knows if it will?
0: Well, I think of this era and researchers like you as during the time when HIV was just coming onto the scene and people that were bright and energetic and responsible, but also had the adventurous spirit dove into it, then figured out while the plane was flying, figure out how to build the plane and generated important data that then became the foundation stones for uh, much more um, work afterwards. So your work was, uh, am I accurate? It's the the first description of um, comprehensive description of COVID and transplant recipients.
1: I think that it's probably some blend of first and largest. There was earlier single center case series for sure. There was some population level multicenter observational data from countries in Europe who have, national healthcare systems, and so the ability to pull together aggregate, but not necessarily very granular data about patients. And so we kind of occupied this niche of like a granular sort of patient-specific data registry with a large number of patients from multiple centers, mostly in the U.S. But my hope is that as a piece of the very big puzzle now of COVID data, that we were helpful, especially to clinicians uh, encountering these patients early on.
0: I think you were helpful both at the clinician level and then also for researchers. I don't know if you follow these things, but I'm sure that that paper has been cited hundreds of times. Um, it's a real testament to being at the right place at the right time and being prepared. So they say luck favors the prepared mind.
1: Or the stubborn mind.
0: Yes, being persistent is important. So you joined us a year ago. And was this your first position or is an attending or were you a hospitalist before?
1: nope, this is my first position as an attending. This is my first full-time job, I suppose. And it's been really, really fun and very interesting, I think, to try to get the hang of kind of being in charge.
0: Of so for our listeners who are themselves looking to transition from a training position, whether as a physician or as a clinician that's not a physician, including pharmacists, What are some of the things you learned in the first year of being a grown-up, if you will?
1: (laughs) Yes, still working on that. I think a couple of things I would love for people to think about. Something I asked about when I was interviewing for physicians that, you know, it was hard to realize how important this was until I had trained in many places. But I asked at Johns Hopkins whether the clinicians, folks like you, and then Dr. Avery and everyone else on the team, felt like our patients were well taken care of and let the patients themselves felt that they were being well taken care of. It is so nice to work in an environment where the patients are able to feel grateful because they truly are receiving high quality care and at multiple levels, right? Someone's not going to feel well taken care of, even if they have the brainiest transplant infectious diseases doctor in the world, if they aren't also getting good food and getting their linens changed in a timely fashion or having pleasant interactions on the phone when they call to make an appointment. And it seemed to me that folks at Johns Hopkins were having that experience and being a part of that feels great. Having my patients say, we love being a patient here. This institution saved my life. That feels fantastic. Even if they're thanking me for something that probably 50 or a hundred other clinicians did over the past several years, I love being a part of that. And so to, I would encourage people looking for work to look not just at like the prestige or the location of your institution or the experience you're going to have as a part of the workforce, but also the experience the patients are going to have being cared for by your whole team. And then the other thing that hit me really hard, actually, when I first got here, and it, it, this is a weird story, but when I was in a I was in a cafeteria one day looking for lunch and at the University of Washington, there was the system like Monday soup was tomato soup, Tuesday soup was Thai chicken soup, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went to the soup counter at the cafeteria at Johns Hopkins. And I asked the guy behind the counter who serves the soups. So I said, you know, there's the soup on some kind of a rotation. Is it like Monday is chili, Tuesday is whatever. And he looked chili. at me and he goes, yeah, it's chili. So he looks at me and he goes, oh no, chili every day. And for some reason that hit me where I was like, oh my God, it's just going to be chili every day for the rest of my life. this is the first position I've been in that has no fixed endpoint that I truly could be here forever. And all of the things that I do, even starting now are part of my like forever career story. The relationships I make, they can be forever. The mistakes I make or missteps I make, those could be forever too. Uh, And everything started to feel just a lot more permanent and uh, and important. And so I encourage people to try to get that feeling maybe not in like a whole chilly bolus like I did when you start a potentially lifelong job that is this is your first impression but it's gonna last for a really long time
0: yeah very very different when you're training you're in three year increments four year increment and then when you have a position then it may be three or four years but it really may be much longer
1: it's different right you can graduate from your training program and they can say, you know, all oh, that Olivia, she was clever. She was a troublemaker. You know, we look back on it now and laugh. But if I'm a troublemaker here, I don't know, I might start to see the consequences of that pretty soon.
0: Well, to quote a late congressman from our uh, good trouble.
1: Good trouble. Much preferred.
0: So um, you got into transplant infectious disease research, but your passion in transplant infectious disease was a little bit different. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, even before um, the COVID project started, I was working on a project on vaccination requirements for transplant candidates. And this was before COVID. We were thinking about vaccines like flu shots and measles vaccine, hepatitis vaccine, and reasoning through the ethics of whether these requirements would be justified. I actually did a master's project on that, not dealing with COVID. And it wasn't until after the COVID project that I circled back to finish that manuscript that ended up getting published in AJT. And the first sentence of the manuscript, when I went back to it, was like, chronic diseases have overtaken infections as the leading cause of death in the United States. And I, just, when I read that nine months into the COVID pandemic, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm really going to have to revise this manuscript a lot. But I, we ended up touching it up to make a little bit more sense and got it in. And then it turned out to be really relevant to the COVID pandemic since we rolled out COVID-19 vaccines and dealt with sort of the political fallout of vaccine misinformation and anti-vaccination campaigns among transplant candidates and had to make decisions about requiring COVID vaccines for those patients.
0: So your interest has been in the ethics of vaccination and medical ethics in general. What is medical ethics for, for dummies like me?
1: So a lot of people will remember medical ethics as like one or two classes they took, maybe rolled in with this concept of professionalism that introduced principles for sort of ethical or good behavior or good practice of medicine. The principles would be things like respect for autonomy, beneficence or seeking to do good, non-maleficence, trying not to do harm, which is different from non-malfeasance, a word people often mix in there. That's a legal term that means trying not to do wrong, like legal malfeasance, and then justice, which is like fair treatment. But medical ethics can be bigger than that, right? It can bring in any of these sort of theories of good and bad or right and wrong over like the entire history of philosophy from the classical era or even earlier and try to use these concepts to help people be good physicians and then experience, live good and healthy moral lives in their clinical, non-clinical research, or even patient roles. So I really like kind of expanding the frame beyond those principles and teaching people about other ways to do ethics that might serve their specific situations a little bit better.
0: What do you think are some of the um, big medical ethics challenges that we're going to face in the next few years?
1: For me, the most overwhelming medical ethics challenge is really one of the most overwhelming medical challenges, period. And that's sort of the organization of the U.S. healthcare system and patients' access to care, access to treatment, and the sort of structural injustices that are built into that system with healthcare linked to employment and the high cost of healthcare, the non-transparent costs of healthcare and the way that that affects families in the United States when they experience illness, I think is really devastating. And so this, to me, is really the greatest ill or, you know, moral ill that we see in healthcare today and trying to find solutions to that is a big challenge. And I think it requires much more broadly interdisciplinary thinking than ethics alone or medicine alone or public health alone. So a lot of work to be done.
0: Have you explored advocacy in terms of petitioning elected leaders? And have you had any experience in that?
1: I haven't had any like official experience like that. I know that some folks, I think you included, get to go to places like Capitol Hill and speak directly with our leaders, which is really neat and really important. I have more of the millennial experience of advocacy, which is like sort of subtweet tweet to open letter spectrum of advocacy. I was a part of an open letter campaign during the COVID pandemic dealing with the public health implications of anti-racism movements and protests, because we were seeing a lot of messaging at the time that groups of people who came together to protest racism and racist policing were potentially going to like, transmit COVID or lead to small COVID outbreaks. And we wanted to really cement the perspective that, you know, the public health organizations are in support of anti-racism efforts in any form that they take, including when they take the form of large group public protests, because overturning systems of racism and justice is a public health imperative. So yes, you know, avoiding COVID-19 transmission is a public health imperative as well. There's more than one important problem in the world. And so we needed to make room for this problem to be, you know, called out. And I would have hoped addressed with these anti racism movements. But again, sort of an open letter uh, at most. Would love to put my nose into more of that business if I can.
0: Well, it sounds like you're already doing a lot. And I think people often feel uncomfortable about physicians taking on what people think are political issues. The way that I approach it is that. As a physician, to be partisan is worrisome because no party can have a monopoly on the truth. However, as a physician to advocate for specific things with the uh, goal of uh, helping our patients and of making uh, the United States and the world healthier, that's well within our purview. So I think that there's a huge role for physicians to be uh, political in that way. Which, again, is different than saying I'm going to support XYZ party regardless of what they do, because that's my tribe.
1: Yeah, I think tribalism has flaws pretty much no matter where you try to apply it. I would say that there's nobody who's going to be excluded from receiving my help as a physician, right, regardless of their background or perspectives or even their behavior, beliefs, you know, which can be more than just in disagreement with me. They can be wrong, but that nothing excludes people from receiving my help as their doctor. There are people out there who need even more of my help because of the spaces that they have been excluded from. You know, And so that's also part of my responsibility as a doctor is to get out there and try to make sure that those voices are better represented.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think that our first and main job is to help the person that's in front of us. And you do a fantastic job, which brings me to brag a little. Tell us about this award that you recently received.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I was very surprised by this. I got, actually, I, so what happened is I received a page from um, Dr. Peter Hill, who honestly, I, he is a very prominent leader of the physicians group and the Johns Hopkins organization still working on my Hopkins leadership hierarchy knowledge. Sorry, but I got a page from Dr. Hill that said, "Please call me." And I, of course, had no idea what that could possibly be about, and was really worried that I was in trouble. That kind of thing happened, and so I sent it to our my colleagues, Bill and Andrew. Be like, guys, like, is this a problem? And they were like, Oh no, are you in trouble? And I called Dr. Hill, and he's like, Congratulations, you got an award <laughs> for for this year for being the best consulting physician at the hospital, which was like a wild surprise. And I was very shaken up actually, because again, I thought I was in trouble. So that was nice. And then um, when I realized how that had come about, I was nominated by one of the internal medicine interns who, you know, they submit a lot of the consults that we ended up doing on the inpatient service and had found that the consults that I did were really helpful and also really educational, which means a lot to me. I've been the medicine intern, been Afraid to call the consult, and I've been excited to call the consult, and I really want people to be excited to call me and learn stuff that helps them and our patients.
0: Well, that, I mean, that's tremendous. I have to say that I've never been in my over twenty-year medical career in any place that has had somebody in their first year out of the gate get recognized like that. So uh, I think you are a tremendous role model, but if people can't quite achieve that in their first year, don't despair. This is an unusual and remarkable thing. I think that I've had the pleasure of reading your notes when I pick up service after you. And and I can absolutely see why you would be recognized this way because they are clear and educational and also pragmatic. And so you had a quote that I saw, and may have been on Twitter about, don't make your dogma somebody else's job, something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's like the infectious diseases, we are the consummate consultant, right? We're basically never in charge. We're always just the extra guys. And I love that. I think that's so much fun. But because we're doing all of these consults, we very frequently are telling other teams sort of what to do. And I think we just have to keep in mind sometimes the other team is the expert in the thing that we're talking about. I don't like being the person who says, you know, ophthalmology, they'd better perform this or else, right? they have a lot of knowledge about when to do that and when not to do that. I think it works much better for us if we can just sort of talk and negotiate with them and exchange that knowledge rather than just say, you know, we sort of like we instrumentalize our colleagues by saying you must do XYZ tasks without valuing the knowledge that they bring to that task. I think that's a mistake. So that's why I say, you know, don't make someone else's job or someone else's expertise your dogma. You don't want to be dogmatic about something that, Someone else does. That's their main thing.
0: No, I, I think that when I saw that, I, I was really struck, and it fit in with one of my beliefs, which is seek first to understand and then to be understood. And so often, as infectious disease doctors, we have a sense as to how things should be, and they're often accurate. But we may not take the step back and say, "Okay, let me understand why this surgeon, who by definition loves to operate,"
1: Exactly. Great. <laughs> exactly right like we've all we saw a great anatomy like those guys love doing surgery so if they're saying they don't want to do it there's often a reason right and it doesn't mean that you're gonna you're gonna be in the wrong every single time they're always right you're always wrong but it, it means that you're always missing some information if you guys have come to the opposite conclusion
0: and you're trying you to swap
1: understand. that back and forth yeah yeah
0: well, this has been fantastic. My Zoom account is telling me that if I don't throw in a few more dollars, they're going to cut me off in a few <laughs> minutes. So until that day comes when I uh, upgrade to the premium package, any last things that our listeners should know about you or your philosophy or your approach or uh, recipes or uh, stock tips?
1: Oh my gosh. If you want stock tips, let me know where you get them. I don't think now is the season for stock tips. In fact, I'm also out of quarters, so can't re-up our Zoom either. But no, this has been a lot of fun. This field is a lot of fun. I think the most important thing for me has been the relationships that I got to make. I got a lot of them through the COVID-19 research project, but I would encourage people who are entering the field to just put themselves out there reach out to people for help, ask questions, introduce yourself, Introduce yourself to me. I love to hear from people who are coming up in transplant ID, in transplant or in ethics, And I think we have a wonderful field to work in.
0: Fantastic. And I'll give a little bit of a, of a plug. Although this podcast is in no way supported by any of these organizations, if you're not a part of them, the Infectious Society of America, the American Society of Transplantation, the American College of Physicians, these are all great organizations to be a part of and they allow your voice to be heard. In in a way that is beyond just who you are, so that both for advocacy and for professional expertise in the American Society of Transplantation, there's the infectious community of practice, which I believe you're a part of.
1: I am a member of the IDCOP, and I was on the executive committee as their early career representative until just last month. Uh, When I handed that job off to Maddie Heldman, who's going to take it and run with it like she always does. But yeah, I would encourage people to look for these professional societies that are relevant to the work that you do, because it is a great sort of built in network. And they are surprisingly welcoming new folks question. It's a great way to get your name out there.
0: Well, thank you everybody for joining us for this return episode of the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. We hope to have many more and see you next time.